Welcome to Spirit Matters at spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name. Uh, we hope that you are a longtime listener, and if you're new to us, please uh, hit the subscribe button and um, take full advantage of every interview we post and go back to our archive and listen to any of the 270 or so interviews we have done over the years. It's all free and uh, we want to keep it that way. So if you move to contribute to that effort, you can do so as well. Uh, those uh, regular listeners and viewers know that uh, I'm usually co-hosting with Dennis Ramundi. He's been dealing with some personal things for a while and has been absent, but we hope to have him back very soon. Today's guest, returning, a triumphant return to Spirit Matters. Uh, he was here a little over a year ago. Uh, Stephen Post. Stephen is the director of the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love and the director as well of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care, and Bioethics at Stony Brook University School of Medicine on Long Island. Uh, he is a leading expert in the fields of uh, Ethics, that's what we spoke about last time he was on, the intersection of spirituality and ethics, and a uh, expert on the care of Alzheimer's and intersection with religion and other good things, and the author of the bestseller, Why Good Things, Good Things, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, and um, other works. So he's back with us today with a new book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People, How Caregivers Can Meet the Challenges of Alzheimer's Disease. And I know uh, you might be surprised that that's going to be the principal uh, focus of our interview, because we are, after all, Spirit Matters. Uh, but this, you'll be uh, pleased to hear uh, what Stephen has to say about subjects of interest to uh, spiritually minded people. Uh, and we'll get to that soon. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Phil. It is a delight to be back with you. Um, let's begin, uh, and I'll refer to our uh, listeners to our first interview with you. Uh, we spoke uh, about the origins of your own spiritual history and so forth. Uh, so please listen back to that. Uh, let's jump right into this, this book. Um, I want, I'm curious why you wrote it and what your own history with the subject is. I was very moved by uh, your descriptions uh, and your accounts of your experience with your grandmother. It's a That's... good place to begin. Okay, please. Yeah, my grandmother was a very thoughtful woman from Sheffield, England. Uh, 
and a dancer on Broadway for a period of time. And uh, as the years passed by, we were quite close. She um, she definitely manifested what we called then senile dementia. She became, if you will, squirrely at a time when the disease causes of dementia, which is a syndrome, but causes like Alzheimer's and so forth, were really not much in the vocabulary. Uh, so I would go to a nursing home where she was and uh, she needed assisted oral feeding, which is to say that she has struggled with her swallowing. And uh, in an almost ritualistic way, uh, I would give her applesauce and bran and such things. And she could not speak coherently uh, at that time. However, uh, I always sensed when I came in the room uh, that she was present. I could see a, a light in her eyes. I could almost feel that there was a bright white light shining within her kind of radiance when I would come in, even though she would not call me by name. And as we went through this process of assisted oral feeding, a kind of back and forth, which is not always neat and easy. Uh, you can get covered with some slobber and so forth. But um, occasionally, uh, I would be surprised because she would simply call me out by name, Stevie. It was not expected. Uh, it was relatively sporadic, although I think it was prompted by the process of back and forth with the feeding. And um, I always felt that even though her linear reasoning had been compromised, even though her memory was by no means what it had once upon a time been, I never doubted for a moment that she was still there underneath it all. Um, and at that time, uh, I, you know, I was a believer in the idea of the one mind. And, uh, and I did not think that the neurological deterioration that was underlying all this, although we didn't have scans and so forth at that time, I never doubted that uh, her essence, uh, her soul, her inner being uh, was was still there. Um, and 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 so that was how I got started uh, thinking about how we think about people with dementia, not to even suggest that I applaud the very word dementia because it's a word of decline from a former mental state. And so hence, deeply forgetful people, more continuous. We all have our moments and some more than others, but it's not a them versus us sort of a scenario. There, but for the grace of God, go I. 
and and I wanted something that would be more inclusive and more engaging of these individuals. So my grandmother post, uh, she taught me in her own quiet way that uh, that she was still there just because I always sensed it intuitively and could see it um, in her facial expressions and very rarely um, in these moments of relative paradoxical lucidity. A term I want to get to. Uh, in your career, addressing uh, issues around uh, care of uh, patients and medicine and so forth, was that early experience, did that lead you to sort of specialize, so to speak, in the treatment of, of people with Alzheimer's? Is, is that fair to say? Well, it was always in the background. It happened to be that in you know, 1988, there was a wonderful neurologist to whom the book is devoted, uh, Dr. Michael Foley, Joseph Michael Foley, uh, who was a great Alzheimer's physician and a great American hero in the field of caregiving. Uh, he invited me to, uh, to go out to Case Western Medical School and work very devotedly with this population, with caregivers, with affected mm -hmm. individuals. So I owe an awful lot to people I met along the journey. I sometimes say, I sometimes say along Route 80. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, Grandma Post was always in the background because I heard language in various settings, some of them um, elaborate clinical settings, some of them in nursing homes. Well, you know, they're just a shell, a husk, they're gone, they're empty, um, they're not there. Um, derogatory hmm. metaphors that I thought had something to do with the very word dementia itself, you know, that decline from a former mental state. And, and I didn't think we really had much business saying those things because from a spiritual perspective, you can never tell me that somebody is is gone. They may they may be opaque. They may be difficult to see at times, but if you're patient, and I use Larry Dossie's word, notice noticer. If you're a noticer, if you notice the 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 hints of lucidity and continuing self identity, um, it's very meaningful, and and you know that you that that grandma's still there. I I sense that grandma was still there, and so sometimes when grandchildren or adult children would ask me, is mom still there? I would always say, well, of course. And I, you go uh, places where most scientists or uh, materialists certainly don't go. You, know, you would say that not only is grandma there, grandma the individual, grandma the personality, grandma the uh, unique human, uh, personage and identity, but you take human uh, identity to the level of that all the mystics have done. Yes, and you use the term oversoul, which uh, I assume you borrowed from Emerson. Uh, yeah, yeah. and. <laughs> 
and you say and use the, uh, also uh, infinite mind. Mm -hmm. um, that is not something one learns in medical school or in you know a PhD program, uh, the usual ones anyway. Mm -hmm. um, how did you come to that? And is there anything in the experience of working with and spending time with uh, people with what you call deeply forgetful people that gives you, uh, that reinforces the notion of this oversoul or infinite mind? Well, you know, this book is full of little anecdotes, many of them involving Joe Foley and, and myself wandering around Ohio and Pennsylvania. There's one little story about a visit to a nursing home called Heather Hill in the town of Chardon, Ohio, about an hour northeast of Cleveland. Um, Joe and I went into a special unit for what I call the deeply forgetful. We read the little bio sketch on the wall about a fellow named Jim. So I understood that he'd had two sons, Zach and Louie, and he'd been an accountant and so forth. And so I asked the nurse to show me where Jim was because these older adults were ambulating in this large room. And she did, and I took Jim over to a table and, uh, and I asked him, calling him by name, uh, not necessarily assuming an answer, but possibly expecting one. Um, I said, Jim, how are your sons? And he got anxious. I could pick it up from him. Um, but then when I asked him, how's Zach? He lit up like oh. a star because I was using language to remind him of a name that he would otherwise have to search out from his own memory. And how about Louis? He also lit up. And then this is the spiritual side. He had a white twig, it's about a foot long, it's pretty thick, and it was rounded on the edges, and um, it was painted white, and he put it in my palms. And when he did that, that, he smiled so energetically that, you know, the place could have caught on fire. And he said to me, as he did that, God is love. Mm. And I gave him back his, his twig. And I asked the nurse, what's, what's the story with Jim and his twig? And she said, well, he grew up uh, in, a, in a farm on, on the Western Reserve of Ohio, and he loved his father very much. And like a lot of these people, he had kind of retreated from the buzzing, busy world around him to a place of tender, loving care. He loved his father very much. And his father gave him a chore every morning when he was a kid growing up, which was to bring kindling in for the fireplace. And so, mm. his, and he'd also gone to a Protestant church in that part of the country with his dad. So that, that symbolic rationality was still there. And his spirituality was still there as I understood it. So there was a, beat up rag doll on the floor. It had been all 
twisted and looked like it was 50 years old. It actually was. And he bent over and he picked it up. Where was he going? There was a woman in the corner of this unit who was sitting in a chair and she was crying. And he put it on her lap. He touched her on the shoulder and he walked away and she stopped crying. And then I asked the nurse, so what's the story with, uh, with this doll? And of course the nurse said, well, that's her doll. And so even though Jim was not lucid of mind and his means ends rationality was highly limited, he had an emotional intelligence. He had a symbolic intelligence. You know, Kasseré, the great philosopher, said, we live in symbols and symbols live in us. And so much of spirituality is about symbolics, right? Um, so I felt that symbolically, he was living mostly in the pure present. So in the now, okay. And um, uh, and his symbolic rationality was still quite, quite deep. And his emotional intelligence was really quite deep. So I thought, what, what possible business do I have thinking that he's of any less value than any other human being? Because he has all this consciousness and all this sensibility and awareness. So he was spiritually alive. Mm. Is it safe to assume, or maybe you, you asked him, uh, that if you said, why do you have this twig? Or if you asked the uh, woman, why do you have this doll? Would they have known? Could they have articulated it? Or is it out of memory? Well, it's possible. It's possible. That's why, you know, I define hope in the book as being open to surprises. Hmm. And people will surprise you. So I didn't ask Jim that uh, because he had already expressed a tremendous amount with this kind of spirit and emotion. Um, but if I had, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't rule anything out hmm. with these individuals. You know, to me, um, I, have, I have a very good friend in Cleveland, a wonderful senior African-American pastor. It's actually very well known, so I won't mention his name, but um, originally from Detroit, his sister uh, passed away of probable Alzheimer's disease about a year ago. And we were constantly going back and forth, texting and phone calling. And I said, Pastor, so in those last weeks, did you think your sister was gone? He said, no, I didn't think she was gone. Um, and I said, well, I don't either. What do you think's happening? And he said, you know, she may be just a step ahead of us. <laughs> and, and I said, hey, for all we know, she's down at that Amtrak station in Detroit, and she's got one foot on that blessed train bound for glory. And he laughed, you know. And 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 so... You know, I tell a story in the book, too, about going with Joe Foley to a little town in the middle of Ohio called Mount Vernon, and it has a psychiatric hospital for geriatric patients, and there was a wing devoted to people who had Down syndrome but had now gotten into their 50s, and like most of the people in that population, they had um, dementia on top of it. 
And there were these wonderful Hindu nurses' aides and nurses, and somehow they had formed a little community right there in the middle of Ohio, which is a little surprising, you know. And um, and they were providing such loving, tender care for these individuals, even when these individuals had behavioral challenges. And Joe and I were so struck by their diligence and their kindness and their warmth. We took a couple of them out to a pizza restaurant in Gambier, Ohio, where Kenyon is, you know, and um, that's the only restaurant they had in town. And we asked them, so what motivates you to be so obviously loving? Um, and the people that were caring for picked that up. You know, they really picked that up. I mean, it was a relatively calm environment. And they said, namaste. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, as, as you would all know, I, I honor the divine in you as you honor the divine in me. And that's a that's a lot different than, you know, when they asked Bertrand Russell if he thought there was such a thing as uh, human dignity and being the materialist that he, that he was, he said, well, um, not really because we're just glorified pond scum. <laughs> so if you think mind is strictly derived from brain, matter, and tissue, then it's easy to de-dignify mm. these individuals, to humiliate them. But if you think that somehow there is this light within um, and that you can connect with it if you are thoughtful about your words and your affect and the use of everything from music to deeply learned poetry that they would know from earlier in life, you know, you want to, you want to be about the business of bringing out their spirituality and affirming it. And that's why pastoral care can actually do some pretty great things with people who are really at the very end stage of dementia because they still have a symbolic rationality. And can, um, yeah, it's beautiful. Can you explain, you've used that term symbolic rationality and you contrast it with uh, what you call linear real, rationality or reality. Can you explain that a little more for us? I would be very happy to. And it's a very, very important question. So um, linear rationality, which is the Western premium, means that I can be a rational agent, that I can make decisions autonomously. This is Kant. Uh, and if you're reading Locke's Second Treatise on Government, I can operationalize those decisions. And that's what makes us truly human and considerable under the protective umbrella of do no harm or of beneficence mm. and kindness. So when that goes, and it does go largely, although you have, again, you never quite can say that, but it seems to be largely gone in many individuals, um, they still have symbolic rationality. I knew a guy in Cleveland named Clint. And he worked in the uh, steel mills on the west side of the Cuyahoga River. And he always dressed country and western. <laughs> and he, he succumbed to deep forgetfulness. And he always had to have his cowboy hat in his hand. And even at the very end, in the last couple of days of his life, he would cling to that hat. And it was as if he knew that somehow 
his journey, his narrative, his identity was hooked up with that symbol. You know, the great artist Willem de Kooning, you know, abstract expressionist, sort of capturing in his work, the age of anxiety as Auden described it, you know, that sort of tough, rough, edgy anxiety is all throughout his work in the 50s and 60s. He was diagnosed with probable Alzheimer's disease by Dr. Norm Relkin at Cornell. And this is now at least uh, 25 years ago. And um, he had lots of issues. He eventually, within a year or so, was living in a loft in Greenwich Village and he had one assistant. And even as he was unable to communicate, he would still dip his paintbrush in acrylic, which mm. was his chair, and he would go up to this easel and he would paint. Now, it wasn't the same kind of painting that he did earlier on, which was, again, very rough-edged and, and, and anxious in tone, uh, but it was much more liberated. It was much more spiritual. It was much more effervescent. Mm. Not quite Georgia O'Keeffe, because that would be too elaborate, but it was a kind of a simplified Georgia O'Keeffe with lots of beautiful yellows and some greens and so forth. And um, he did that for 13 years. Huh. Dementia progressed. Um, and then there was an exhibit uh, of his artwork uh, while deeply forgetful in one of the New York museums. And uh, there was an article about it in the New Yorker. And the critics said, oh, he was a shell of his former self. He was gone, he was absent. But there was one who I liked who said, wait a minute, this is a guy who had progressive dementia for 14 years. And for something like 13 years, he knew symbolically he was a painter. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as I look at his later work, um, there was a wonderful kind of disinhibition mm. of kindness and, and, and joy because, you know, he was the kind of guy who was constantly getting in fist fights in front of the Cafe Wa on Bleecker Street. You know, <laughs> that was who he was, hanging out with Jackson Pollock, whatever, you know. Uh, but there was a mystical quality within him that was inhibited by this idea of, you know, I don't do nothing for nothing, right? This kind of negative mythology. But as he forgot those negative myths, he came in closer contact, I think, with his inner being. And that's reflected in his later art. So, fascinating. You know, that's my take on it. That, no, it's fascinating. Um, and I, I didn't know that story about de Kooning. I'll have to go search out that article. Um, it's, it strikes me that this notion of symbolic reality um, the implication of it with deeply forgetful people or with even modestly forgetful people is that it it points to a continuity of of uh, selfhood and identity and uh, a kind of grace because i can imagine people family members caretakers and so forth uh, seeing 
somebody who always insists on wearing a cowboy hat and somebody with a twig or somebody with a child's doll thinking, oh, they're nuts and dismissing it as crazy behavior. But if you think about the possibility that it has symbolic rationality, it, it becomes something entirely different, doesn't it? Yeah. And it's purposeful. Yeah. You know, so so uh, uh, I actually, you know, once upon a time, I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School when Mersha Eliade and mm. Joseph Campbell were floating around. And so symbolism, you know, meant a lot to me, to me in terms of capturing the spiritual world, if you will. And Sir John Eccles was on the faculty there and he had gotten a Nobel Prize for his work on the basic physiology of neurotransmission. He was, a, he, he, he was, he was never convinced at all that mind could be reduced to matter. He always believed that, um, that mind was its own stuff, if you will, and that matter was derived from mind. So he was a totally mind before matter type guy. And so was Eliade and Joseph Campbell. And it was all about symbolism. So hmm. I think symbol, so there's a fellow at Yale who I happen to know, his name was Leander Keck. He was a New Testament exegete, quite renowned. And his wife, Janet, succumbed to a very severe form of dementia, probable Alzheimer's disease, and she couldn't communicate with anybody around Prospect Street and Yale Div School, but she went to services on Sundays. And there you have all this familiar symbolism. First of all, hymns that she identified with from her childhood. Mm. She would from what her son David describes in a book about this, she would just chime in gloriously to these hymns. The stained glass windows, mm. she would just brighten up like the light itself. And the prayers, you know, she would recite these prayers. And after the service, she would actually be able to converse at least for some minutes with the people around her in that community, even though she had not been conversational hmm. for some time. And so she was entering into a symbolic universe and, and she came back into herself to some degree. Yeah. And, and that's very, very powerful. Fascinating. Another term uh, that uh, attracted me in, in the writing uh, in the book is a paradoxical lucidity. Please explain that because I think the implications were really fascinating. So the next book I write about deeply forgetful people will probably be called paradoxical lucidity. <laughs> it's a little different. Uh, filled in terminal lucidity, which you sometimes hear spoken about. Because paradoxical lucidity, and I give many examples anecdotally, can occur, you know, many years even before death. But while someone is uh, really quite chin down on their chest, not uh, able to communicate verbally, uh, and and yet somehow they come out of it sporadically or maybe 
because someone connects with them symbolically or whatever. And, and, and so it's paradoxical because you wouldn't think that would happen, but there they seem to be. <clears throat> and, um, and it raises every kind of question. I talk about it in chapter seven, is grandma still there? You could try to, and, and actually in par cases of paradoxical lucidity, I'm doing a big study on this now, um, and actually a, a big survey on this topic. Um, they, they sometimes can, can be very lucid, very lucid, almost like their normal old selves. And this is, again, I give lots of interesting cases of this in the book. So the question is, where's is that coming from? So my question metaphysic, okay, uh, you know, is, is that coming from some little speck of neurolo neurological tissue that somehow is uh, activated? doesn't make much sense to me that a whole self could come back based on that sort of episode. Mm. If you think of it materialistically, it's a stretch to me. Rationally, it's a stretch. It's much easier for me to take the view of, you know, Sir John Eccles, of Plato, of, I think, Einstein, of so many great, you know, William James, Henri Bergson, um, um, uh, certainly Larry Dossie, uh, and just say, you know, underneath all of this, they were never gone. They were always there. And somehow or another, we have this moment where it comes through. So even though their soul, their spiritual being was opaque, that's why the cover of the book is kind of opaque, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's still there. And our job is to use symbolics and the power of love and creativity to, to connect with them at that level and for them to reveal themselves to us. It, it, Alzheimer's um, is it, a disease of memory. And so if we think of, of that as having to do with... Uh, some uh, damage or uh, abnormality or affliction in the brain, something going on uh, physiologically, neurologically. And it strikes me that what you're just talking about raises the question of what is memory and where is memory. And you have a, a fascinating um, a metaphorical description of it comparing or the possibility of raising the possibility whether we and our memory is something like a computer connected to the cloud. Yeah, I do. Yes. And I, please explain that because it has a lot of ramifications, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot of spiritual people, uh, some Buddhists, but, but, um, uh, uh, but some, uh, uh, who were simply new age, I'll say. And um, they will talk about the Akashic memory mm -hmm. that makes actual sense of karma, that mm -hmm. somehow the events of our lives are recorded in a cloud, call it a cloud, some <laughs> sort of cosmic memory, the memory of the one mind. And, and that's why we are 
accountable for our actions and we need to abide by the golden rule. Doesn't mean that there isn't forgiveness in the universe and so forth, don't get me wrong, but that there's something there that's mysterious, that's a kind of a, a record of it all. Um, so uh, I draw on a very distinguished uh, neuroscientist, uh, Cambridge graduate, UK, uh, medical school graduate from King's and a biochemist who's at the University of, uh, at Queen's University in Ontario, very distinguished guy named Forrest Dyke. And he points out, you know, people for many, many years, they've been writing about individuals who were born with uh, anencephaly, uh, uh, with hydrocephaly, with, with such brain damage that as they grew older, only 5% of their brain was actually in place. And yet, there are lots of case examples in the neurology literature. These people were perfectly able to remember things. They could converse, you know, they live relatively normal lives. And, and it raises the question for Forrest Dyke. So, you know, where is memory? What is memory? And, and he suggests, you know, three options, the, you know, the sort of classical models that memory is in some little point in the brain, you know, um, and the other one is more holographic. It's sort of encompassing the whole brain. But then he says, for things like autobiographical memory, it, you know, it almost doesn't make sense. You know, St. Augustine in the Confessions has this beautiful chapter on memory, which I used to read a lot when I was in grad school. And he says, you know, how is it that a human being in just a millisecond you know, can conjure up some beautiful remembered scene from, say, the Delaware Water Gap, on, you know, or whatever it might be. There it is in all of its detail, all of its exactness. Just conjure that up. So Augustine didn't think that was physiological, hmm. right? Uh, you know, he had the classical view that somehow that suggests that our memories and our minds are much more profound then we understand. And the fact that we can come come up every day, you know, in, in just everyday living with these imaginations and so forth, he says it suggests that, that memory may be much more than we think. And so I just, you know, in that chapter, now I wrote it in Bangalore, okay, I have to tell you that. So I got an invitation to go to the Indian Institute for Advanced Studies, which is in Bangalore. And um, I was doing a plenary address on uh, deep forgetfulness and the meaning of consciousness. And uh, I was saying that, you know, we in the West, we disregard people who are deeply forgetful too easily because of, you know, the Kantian, Lockean, hypercognitive business. Um, Neurologists sometimes get mad at me for using the word hypercognitive, which we invented, you know, but because they know hypocognitive, you can be mm. you know, too diminished, but, but you're, but, but, you know, below the threshold, but can you possibly be above a threshold? You, know? you can have hypercognitive values and be dismissive <laughs> of people who are somewhat forgetful. So um, I was giving this talk and, and uh, um really embracing all these Hindu neurologists and philosophers who were there. 
and there was a little stirring in the back of the room. It was a seminar room. It was pretty filled. And uh, uh, lo and behold, uh, somebody stood up and they put their hand down on the table and they said, yes, there's no reason to value a human being less because they are uh, memory uh, compromised. And that was his holiness. So this book is actually endorsed wow. by, by his holiness, the Dalai Lama. And I have up here on my, above my desk, this beautiful letter, uh, a forward actually from his holiness. And he, he ends by saying, close is addressing themes such as consciousness and interconnectedness in this new book. And it will contribute to a flourishing humanity. So what I want to do is I want to include deeply forgetful people in our spiritual community. Beautiful. And also in a positive psychology community too. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds like a great uh, conclusion to, uh, I, I wish we could go further, but in, in the minute or so that we have left, Stephen, what do you want the uh, listeners and viewers to come away with? As many of us will be already are or will be dealing with uh, deeply forgetful people, we becoming forgetful ourselves at times. What's the takeaway? Forgetfulness can never separate us from the power of love. That would be my takeaway. You know, uh, like St. Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if, if God is love, if the whole universe is love, if you know, love is the ultimate reality, uh, a little neurological deterioration does not separate us from the one mind of pure unlimited love. Wonderful. Thank you. Again, everybody, the book, Dignity for Deeply Forgetful People. It's written for caregivers, but I think there's much in it for everybody, whether you're mildly forgetful or deeply forgetful or a caretaker or just somebody interested in subjects like consciousness and the ones we've been talking about. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us and best wishes. It's a pleasure, Phil, and I'm going to read your biography of Yogananda. It's a deal. Right. I, I love Yogananda. You know, I used to read yeah. it at Reed College. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. You, you mean the autobiography of the yogi? No yeah, doubt. the autobiography yeah. of the yogi. The book yeah. that has changed millions of lives. Uh, yeah. And But thank you for plugging my book, which uh, fills in the gaps <laughs> where oh, the autobiography does. doesn't go. Yeah, it's Thanks very so relevant. Much. Okay, thank you. Be well. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Be well. Thank you.